Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my boss, so I better be on my toes. Uh, it is Dr. Tom Scalia, Physician in Chief, R. Adams Cali Trauma Center, and we're talking uh, today about. Uh, the history of intervascular trauma. We had an episode in, in another podcast, Dr. Sclater, kind of talked to Dr. Morrison about the nuts and bolts of how what mm-hmm. it is today. Sure. But, but he provides a different perspective uh, as someone who's not seen the full breadth of this. I guess my first question would be to ask you, what is, when you put that, those separate words together, intervascular trauma management, what what is that? Is it a thought process or approach? Is it a set of skills? Is it a new specialty? Is it a fantasy? It's all of those things. It was a fantasy um, 30 years ago. It has become, in my mind, a, um, a philosophy of care. And I think it, it's an expanded set of options for people caring for injury. To me, way back when, we had a very... Um, chest-pounding way of doing things. Me, operate, and and anything other than an open operation is what pansies did, and it's, it it, it wasn't very enlightened, frankly, Joe, And, and so the idea that care from the inside of a blood vessel, endovascular care, would be helpful it's just a different look at things and uh, there have been in my career uh, I've had a number of epiphanies I think I'm still young enough to learn and I, I, I think that you recognize that there are scenarios in which a look inside an organ is better than a look outside an organ and the prototypical one, of course, is uh, a deep liver injury. It's really hard to see the middle of the liver. It's really easy to see the middle of the liver with an angiogram, for instance. And, and so, as we learned in the 80s and the 90s, and damage control became a thing, and then damage control resuscitation became a thing. It seems to me that what we have done is we have amplified our options. This is an option. It's not always a good option, but it's an option. And the genius here is to take all of those options and then create a a, a single strategy when n equals one, or uh, create a philosophy when you're considering the management of fill in the blank. So I, I like the, the philosophy vernacular, but however you define it, uh, this didn't happen overnight. And there are a lot of people who try to track back, and I have often myself said, when did this start? You know, some people say Carl Hughes' experience during the Korean War, we tried to put a balloon in an open aorta and it didn't work out real well, but he, it was the thought. Russian surgeons claim to have invented, probably rightfully so, the endograph for aneurysmal disease that extrapolated into trauma applications. And I honestly don't know when or where. I've tried to track it down. The first therapeutic angioembolization for hemorrhage specifically took place. But these are clearly contributors to the beginnings of the journey. But it really didn't start in earnest until 1980s and spurts and starts that it really started to get traction. You happened to be in New York during that critical era of the 1980s into the 90s during what we call the crack wars, right? It was a violent time in New York. It's not like it was in New York then. 
How did endovascular applications get started during that era in New York? What did you see in your foxhole, so to speak, in terms of the promise of this technology? Yeah, I think there were a lot of onesies and twosies, right? So Colonel Hughes, out of desperation, shoved the balloon up and didn't work out so well for, at least for the patients, but it was a cool idea. It's a great idea, right? And um, I think the first report that I can find of angiography for trauma was the 72 Margulies New England Journal of Medicine uh, article where they used uh, angi- angiography, diagnostic angiography, to identify people with vascular injuries. Uh, these were patients with blunt trauma and pelvic fracture, all three of them. And they used that to uh, triage people for operation, right, to go try to fix the bleeding, which anybody that's done that knows that doesn't work out quite so well. But I, I think there are really two people that, um, two radiologists, three people total that really started this. The first is Bob Ayala, and, he, and, and Dr. Ayala was here. I, I never knew him, and I... As much as I have tried to poke at the people that were here, I have not been able to get as clear a thread as to Dr. Ayala's thought process, but he clearly was um, the first trauma radiologist, as far as I can tell, that had an expansive uh, practice that that, that, that was all injury, CT, plain films, and, I am told, intervention. The two people in New York that really started this were Jerry Shafton and Sal Scalfani. Now, Sal um, went to medical school, I think, in Syracuse and did his radiology residency in Brooklyn and got bitten for some reason by the trauma bug. He thought it was cool. And when he finished, he approached Dr. Shafton and said, could I work with you? He stayed on the faculty and Jerry, you know, in his, I'm sure, very gruff way said, okay, I'll let you, I'll let you hang around. The first case, and this I'm very clear on, I'm, Sal and Jerry tell exactly, you know, Jerry now recently dead. Um, and this was all at Kings County? This is all Kings County. There was a patient that had a splenectomy, and the guy bled, and the surgeon took him back, and he reoperated, and then he bled, and he got up to about three, and he went to Dr. Shafton and said, "What do I do? I will you help me?" And it's real. The words are really, really important here. Dr. Shafton did not say, call Dr. Sclafani and ask him to do an angiogram. He said, you should consult Dr. Sclafani. And and that's so important because it empowers Sal in this case. Sal's a a card-carrying member of the trauma service. And it wasn't, hey boy, come here and do an angiogram. It's, what do you think? And Sal did an angiogram and found bleeders off the splenic artery behind the pancreas, embolized the splenic artery, and the patient stopped bleeding. And that really jump-started the Kings County 
trauma interventional. That's probably 83 or so, 82, 83, somewhere in there. And that really starts, I think, Jerry really bought the, the concept and Sal was, Sal was the only radiologist for us. He worked 365 days, he was always on call. He came and did every angiogram. He read every plane film. He read every CT scan. I'll never complain about my work schedule again. Um, so, obviously, this happened gradually, but it sounds like you had a true champion, which I think is always important for any movement. But as you moved into the 90s and your role as a, le- as a leader and with these great partners at Kings County Hospital in New York, how did endovascular applications begin to fit more kind of commonly into mainstream practice? Was it a subtle thing, or how did that work? Yeah, we had this idea that, or Sal had this idea, that we could embolize spleens. And this was based on a couple of case reports in, in pediatrics of splenic artery ligation to treat splenic injury, to avoid splenectomy in kids. So Sal said, I could ligate the splenic artery with a coil. So we worked it out. This is, of course, before the days of IRBs, and we just did it. We went, the first guy we did um, was just as I got there, and um, we embolized him, and, and it was successful, and we said, Jesus, what do you think we should do now? That guy stayed in the hospital three and a half weeks. We, we saw him every four hours for a week. Whoever was on call had to go see that person every four hours and re-examine him. We were terrified he was gonna die. And we didn't let him leave until we had a CT scan and a spleen scan that showed that his spleen was healing. That guy had a grade two or a grade three spleen. <laughs> Today, that guy be out the door in you know, three days, right? New, non-operative management was new. It's That's right. So, levels can be small. So we did that, and we amassed that experience. Now, you fast forward to the 88, 89, 90, and the crack wars start, and cell becomes highly important in our approach because, you know, we've got these desperately sick people with five or six gunshot wounds with trajectories through all cavities and Sal keeps on, he's the drum that just keeps beating and says, I can help you with that. And and we were so, we were so busy and it, these were so lethal that we said, boy, there's got to be a better way than what we're doing because people didn't live so well. And all of this um, really uh, fast forward. The other thing that happened in the crack wars, or the early part of the crack wars, was the jumper series. And the jumpers, really, many of them were people that were escorted off roofs, didn't actually jump. So the uh, the custom in Brooklyn is if you uh, sold drugs in the wrong neighborhood, you got uh, brought up to the roof, you got beat up, you got tied up, and you got thrown off the roof. And so we saw all of these, right? 160 in two years. I, ju- I just pulled the paper. 
uh, ISS 41 in people over the that were more than five stories. Yeah. Survival was 55%. Pretty impressive. That's pretty good. And a lot of that was cell embolizing pelvises, cell embolizing lumbar arteries, cell helping us as an integral part of the team. And so all of this then morphs into livers and kidneys and pelvises and all of those things that um, it just becomes part of our of our culture now. Yeah, it really Sal. Call Sal. Yeah, call Sal. Um, so you came to Shock Trauma in uh, 1997, right? You're, I did. You're in your mid-40s. Great story. If you ever get, for the listeners, ever get Dr. Scalia cornered at a bar at a meeting, have him tell you the story. It's a good one. I enjoy hearing it every time I make him tell the fellows to it. But you're now at a new sit- new place, new situation, new capabilities. So what was the state of endovascular kind of capabilities for trauma when you arrived? And did you have a vision on your arrival to change practice pattern relative to kind of endovascular capabilities in the first few years? Or how did that come about? Yeah, it was a... Uh it was a kind of a gradual internal conversation, I think, Joe. I got here and I was, I'm 45, and it's a it's a different world, right? I had not seen this degree of high speed vehicular crash. Nobody could drive that fast in New York, and, and so I have my learning curve, but I bring um, my prejudices with me and. And I'll say, uh, the people that uh, actually were the greatest um, champions for some of this new stuff were the orthopedic guys. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Pelvic fractures yeah. and angioembolization. That was Andy Burgess. Was Andy Burgess yeah. and Bobby Brumback and Attila Literally the Polka. people who defined pelvic fracture patterns and how yeah. to manage them. Yeah. And so... Th- th- this starts making sense. We didn't have quite as um, robust help from the interventional people early on, but then we uh, recruit this guy named Doug Caldwell. Doug, we got comes from Denver General, okay, right? So he's like a trauma guy, and he coins the term exploratory angiography, and. He just can't do enough of these things, and you know he'll he he was a real trauma guy, like Sal, and so we'd send the people over to angiography, and Doug would call me up. He said, "I've got this. I embolized the pelvis. I dropped the filter. Sorry, I dropped the filter in. I I did all. I I look at the spleen, and another big explosion in endovascular care here. It's like sending somebody to quick loop for trauma. He changes the oil. Yeah. He does everything. Right? Well, it just... Because he it, had passion for it. He had a passion. And the thing that I, I'm not sure I understood at the time, he had the mindset. He was a trauma guy that happened to be a radiologist as opposed to a radiologist that had to take call for trauma. In the same way that if you're someplace and you've got 10 orthopods who only one who really does trauma, nine nights out of 10, you've got the shoulder guy or, or the knee guy taking trauma call, that's different. And so with Doug, we had a trauma guy taking call. Yeah. And, and that really um, expanded our knowledge of what we could do with a catheter. 
Yeah, and the technology continues to improve too, and I imagine he kept his tabs on that, and, uh, and that's all important as well. So I don't think at this point moving forward, I don't think it's at the at the risk of tooting our own horn. I, I have had other people from outside institutions tell me, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say that shock trauma at present is now fairly well known as a leader in intervascular trauma care and, and maybe the leader at present because of our configuration of people we have here. And I think it's really been a result of a couple of key decisions that I'll give you credit for as our leader making. So if you will, I'd like to you to provide your thoughts on each of these uh, these two kind of key decisions I, that I'm thinking about here and, and what led you to make them and how you went about it and the importance. And, and the first one I'll talk about is you need a, to optimally, in my opinion, utilize endovascular trauma care. You need a space that's unique to that patient care concern area and the skill sets to work in. And that's a dedicated trauma hybrid OR. And we have one here at Shock Trauma, Room 11. It is a fantastic resource. How the heck did that come about? How did you fund it? How did you carve it out at the trauma center and, and say, this is ours, it's not purely vascular surgery, it's not cardiac surgery? And what did you see as the value of that dedicated space? I, When I got here, the guy that recruited me, sort of, the guy that got me to come was a guy named Don Wilson. And Dr. Wilson... The dean. The dean. Yeah. And... Um, one of the things he said to me early on is build good programs, the money will follow. And I think I've repeated that 1,500 times since then. And this was one of those decisions, right? Uh, we're working on this endovascular stuff and Megan has gone to Arizona Heart and now she's back yeah, and so just for the listeners that Megan Brenner was a fellow I think she was I wasn't here yet she was a year ahead of me I think yeah. we were contemporaries Megan Brenner Ron Tesserero right. you had the foresight in the vascular well, he had all these open old endovascular guys now the endovascular technology is coming along so they got to go somewhere to learn endovascular skills right. and Arizona Heart was one of those places you could go for six it, months six months and do a little mini fellowship right. not a board credit but catch up on the skill set that's passed you by and you had this great idea to send those folks Megan Brenner was one Ron Tesserero and others yeah. to go spend six months as part of their right. young development it was one of those things where we built good programs so, well, how are you going to fund her salary? I said, I don't know. We'll fund it. It's just money, yeah. right? And, and so we'll find the money. It's a good idea. And as we evolved this, and frankly, the interventional radiologist became less interested in trauma applications, and we became more interested, it became very clear to me that... Um, one of the things that was blocking us from expanded endovascular use was the physical distance between us and the interventional radiology suite. It's a block away. And that's just the loneliest place. And then Ron writes the article about pelvic fracture hemorrhage and how long it took us to yeah, actually yeah. to actually get over there and we've moved towards extra peritoneal pelvic packing but it just wasn't right we didn't have exactly the right configuration when we build the new operating rooms um, the cardiac guys come and say well we need another room and I say well you're using you got these endovascular rooms I know but we want an open room and it was very simple I said I'll trade you 
Really? So yeah, yeah. The, the car, you just saw that card and picked it up? Yeah, yeah, I said, I'll give you room seven if you give us room 11. And everybody said, well, I said, no, 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 already, already said yes. We're done. That's ours now. And they say the barter system is dead. That's right. Yeah. And so we, and I, same thing. I said, we'll figure it out. And the day we started that, it was so clear to me that that was a great decision. Because we now had Megan and Melanie and then you. Melanie Melanie Hone is a vascular surgeon who was, just like you said, she was probably more trauma. She went on and did trauma fellowship. She was more trauma surgeon than vascular. Well, she was. and, And it just was so clear to me now that it's not about the catheter, it's about the mindset, right? And so you gotta have trauma guys, and I look back, that's what we had in New York, right? Sal was a trauma guy that happened to be a radiologist. And that, I think, it's that's the discussion, right? If you have people that are, that don't know anything about the disease, but they're good with catheters, you got nothing. What you need is people that understand the disease that are good with catheters. Then you've got something. And the more I was convinced that that was true, and I'm even more convinced now than I was back then, the more I said, we need to invest in this because this is where we're going. You know, the other thing that, of course, happens here, Joe, is young people, young surgeons, aren't doing as many operative cases. They're not doing as many trauma cases. They're not doing big livers. They're not spending time in the pelvis like I did, you know, when I was in New York City. And so the need for endovascular care amplifies because we need somebody that can do stuff with a catheter because people aren't as familiar with with this, that, or something else. And and these are places where endovascular care shines. So yeah. why wouldn't we want to do that? We do. Yeah. So I, And I, I think that, that segues nicely into our my next question about kind of, you have, have always had at least two since you started this process kind of in earnest. Initially, it was Megan Brenner and Melanie Hohen who really did such a great job. Hats off to my sisters in endovascular trauma care who set things up here really for success. I came back with the part as part of my military assignment after having a discussion with you about the future where trauma was going, and you largely convinced me that kind of going back and doing a vascular fellowship, as painful as it might be, would broaden my career, and I could still be a vascular surgeon who's really a traumatologist, right? if you will. Um, we, Johnny Morrison came over from the UK. Rishi Kundi, who was a vascular surgeon here, went to go get his critical care and uh, boards. So you now have a configuration of three. And we've got other people who are scrambling to come in and, and, and join the team that are great uh, folks. So you've put together this faculty to provide all these services that were once provided by interventional radiology and vascular surgery. I know you've talked about that happening, but how did that really come into being, and and what what is their model of practice? How does that their practice pattern and model work? Yeah, I think it's evolved a lot, and you know that work we published in Annals uh, clearly demonstrates that our total endovascular volume continues to grow. Once you have a good idea, you find other reasons why that will be a good idea, and I I don't think we've hit the uh, the peak here yet. I think that will continue for some two or three more years. 
and as endovascular technology gets better, maybe there'll be another jump up and, and in, in a way very similar to laparoscopic surgery. You know, when we first started, all we did was gallbladders. Yeah. Now we do a lot of stuff. Yeah. And, and I think that the endovascular um, revolution, to, which I think is a fair term, uh, will continue and we will then do this. Now, we've been pretty good so far because I, I think you need enough at-bats to continue to get good at this. And so everybody needs a big enough volume of either elective or trauma or emergency vascular plus trauma plus general surgery emergencies to be able to say I'm really I'm good at this uh, I'm I'm continuing to accrue skills our volumes are huge and they continue to grow uh, therefore I, I think we we can support three three plus but plus is not a big number people um, but that's enough right because it's enough to cover the call we've got a couple of the old guys that'll still do some of the open stuff so that allows us to to make it a reasonable lifestyle for people you know it, I kind of have I, we're all a little different like you know we all have dual practices I like the fact of bouncing back between a little bit the vascular trauma and then even in trauma I get to do the, the kind of vascular things I like which is I always tell people I like stuff that's bleeding or rupturing you know or oh, cold cold legs ischemic stuff emergencies I like that's what I enjoy but you've also had, as we built this practice, had to carve out some territories, some traditional other things. And I often get that question, what does IR say about all this? What does vascular say about all this? What's been, and every institution's unique and different. Yep. And shock trauma, we being an independent trauma center, one of the only freestanding ones in the country, we don't have to answer a lot of folks, but we play nice in the neighborhood. We do. And But what were the friction points, and how did you negotiate those with the leaders from IR and for along this whole spectrum? Yeah, IR was... Uh, it wasn't as well organized at the time we did this. And I called him and I said, why don't you come play? But it's going to be in room 11. You just got to come over here. It's the same Zigo. It's the same catheters. It's the same everything. And they said, we don't want to come. And I said, well, we're not going to call anymore. If you don't come, we're not going to call. And they didn't come and we didn't call. Vascular was a little bit different. We, uh, Raj and I, Raj Sarkar, and I had, there's sometimes we bumped into each other a little bit, but I think to a large extent, most of them didn't want to do trauma. They did it when they had to. They weren't very happy about it. Sometimes they did better than others. And because they weren't trauma guys. They were vascular guys that were doing trauma. And so this, it, it was actually a pretty smooth transition. And, and it remains such. Uh, we, Raj and I have, uh, it's a very clear delineation. And there are times when I will call one of them or you will call one of them or they will call one of us. Um, so it goes back and forth, and there's enough business, so far at least, that everybody's got plenty to do, and we just do trauma, and they do other stuff, and 
there's a, there's a very nice interplay back and forth, and so that that was actually pretty easy. Yeah, I think the personalities play a big role, and and our group has been able to collaborate on a lot. We help them out when they're behind with a bunch of Asker cases. They do the same for us for trauma. Yeah, really nice. So. That's where we're at now. What are the next steps? What do you envision as the kind of the future of endovascular trauma capabilities in the near and far future? And with an eye towards, and this will be a contentious topic, but uh, not just what we do as kind of the endovascular dual trained people, but as skill sets like Roboa become uh, a, a big, bigger part of the trauma surgeon's skill set, does that bar increase? Do they now do formal diagnostic angiographies using power injectors and, and the Zego suite in the same way I do? Is that something they could get credentialed to do and do safely? And where do you, where, where's the ceiling? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's up there, and it's a long ways away because I don't think we're even close. We're just scratching the, the possibilities. I frankly think Robo is a primitive tool. And I think that the real um, endovascular revolution here is going to be balloon technology as a bridge to upper end organ support, selective aortic arch perfusion, um, EPR, eCPR. All of those things we're going to embrace. We've done it. We're doing it in the lab now, and we will translate that to people. And I think that creating these strike teams, for lack of a better term, that leave the hospital and go do this in the field or in in community hospitals is uh, is the way of the future, and that's going to be. A group of dual trained people that could be emergency physicians that accrue catheter skills it could be vascular surgeons that accrue critical care skills it's there's going to be a bleeding of um, of expertise that's going to create these new people whatever the hell it is we're going to call them and if we don't do this the emergency physicians and the other people are going to, and that would be a tragedy. And so I see all of this is jumping up, and as you well know, uh, we have modeled a curriculum here that looks pretty good. And I think we can um, train people in six months or a year to the Arizona heart, right? You're not a vascular surgeon, but you've got skills to do vascular intervention. And the thought process is to know when it's appropriate Correct. or not. Yeah, that's and certainly that I, I think it's it's, it's, it's always, yeah. always, always more a mental game. Yeah. As you've heard me say a thousand times, you can teach a monkey to do tactile skills. It's knowing when to do them and when not to do them. More importantly, when not to do them. Well, and, and I think there's you can't understate the, the dual training element of being comfortable saying, you know, if this endo thing doesn't work, I have my back right. is open, I'm comfortable doing it. Right. Um, that has been great. This has been pure gold, and I talk to you all the time about this issue, but I don't think we've really sat down and had this kind of cohesive all the way from biblical times through contemporary stuff. Uh, so it's been great, and I think the listeners are going to really enjoy it. It is time, however, for our random questions. And you know all how right. this works, right? We want to get to know Tom Scalia, the man, 
not the physician-in-chief and icon of surgery that leaves med students and residents dumbfounded. I know you as a great guy and a very personable person. It's hard to get through those barriers of the reputation you have. So we're going to break through those together. Um, you have had, uh, you have a rich and proud Italian heritage. You come I from do. a big Italian family. And the Italian culture has clearly contributed in countless ways to American culture. What's the greatest Italian contribution to American culture? Is it the Godfather trilogy? Is it pizza? Is it the Jersey Shore? What is it? What is what? Or something else? It's. I, I think it's a love of life, and um, I, when I look at the Italians, and I know many of them, right? And I'm I'm one of them. I I think it's an approach to living that uh, gets you out of your own self into others with your family, with your extended family, right? Because everybody's my family, as you well know. That's the good news and the bad news for them. And um, I, I think it's a way of living, Joe. No, oh, that's great. Uh, I also know that you enjoy movies and film. And if there's any film buff, you have your quirky favorites. Accordingly, I have it, I've been told on good authority that you particularly enjoyed at one point, at least, the 2000 American romantic musical comedy drama masterpiece known as Coyote Ugly. I did. Was I this, do. Was this film overlooked by the major wars? It's a fabulous film. <laughs> and I, I'm frankly astounded. Is that your favorite movie, Coyote it's Ugly? Not, I'm not sure it's my favorite movie, but I think it's a movie that speaks to many people in many ways. And I don't think it was ever um, given the credit. I think it's a great piece of filmmaking, and I think it got overlooked. I think it got overlooked, and I think that's sad because it's a fabulous film. I didn't. I, I heard that. I didn't realize you were that passionate about it. Coyote Ugly. I'm going to have to watch it again to make sure yeah. that I didn't miss anything. Um, if they decided next week to make your story, what actor would you select to play you? easy that's El Pacino <laughs> I can actually see that I tell you when I was in New York City and a little bit younger um, it was pretty common for for people to come up on the and on the street and think I was El Pacino did you ever try to pull it off no <laughs> I have too much respect for him but I uh, I, I, that, that's an easy one. Did it ever get you a free lunch or anything? And they just sent you the bill. The bill's taking care of Mr. Pacino, no? <laughs> uh, last question, a little more serious this time. So I, 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 one of the things that I admire most about you is your ability to be a proven innovator at, uh, in your career, throughout your career. You've never gotten, sta- you've never gotten stale. Um, what advice do you have for others about identifying and nurturing your, not just your own innovative ideas, but you've also encouraged a lot of other people to kind of pursue things? Um, how, how do you stay innovative yourself and nurture it in those around you? Yeah, I think it's harder now. Um, you know, when I was young, there weren't so many rules. And I would say to people, and I say this to young, to the medical students, the residents, they all look at me like I'm stupid, and I probably am. Don't let people put you in a box. The system will put you in a box, and, and, and then you live in that box. But that's a silly way to live. And I can't do that because baloney. Sure you can. And, you know, residents who say, well, I'm only an intern. Crap. Step up, be a doctor, take care of your patients, go sit, go talk to them, go laugh with them, go cry with them. 
and their families. And when you do that and you immerse yourself, and, and uh, you know, I, I have the ADR work week is the ADR work week. I couldn't, I'm, I'm so over those discussions. But when I was training and when I was a kid and still now, as of two days ago, you know, when you're immersed in this and you see things, you develop little um, nuances of thought that you just don't get when you live in a box. And, you know, I did this case with Rich Betzel, this lady with the blood cardiac rupture. Yeah. And I learned something, and I, you know, that's still in there. It's going to come out in a different way one night as I'm finishing a martini. I'm going to say, yeah, that's what that meant. And we're going to use that to continue the conversation. Okay. Um, but you have to do that. You know, yeah. you can't let people constrain you. You have to dream big. Yeah. And then you have to build good programs and the money follows. Yeah. it's it's. Uh, you have a knack for it, so I'm still taking notes and trying to learn from you. Well, Dr. Scalia, uh, thank you so much. You're a busy man. I know this well as well as anyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again for another episode. We look forward to maybe chatting with you again on yeah, some Yeah, happy topics. to do it. This has been great. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks. This has been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Be sure to check out the rest of our offerings on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. If you want to contact us with any questions, comments, or suggestions for additional topics, you can email us at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com.